Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians, Philippians chapter 1 this evening. I've taken flack for two things this evening already. One is my attire, wearing a suit and tie. Um, I'll just, uh, I'll I'll say uh, two things about that. One, I had meetings like all afternoon, so I didn't have time to change if I was going to. And then two, I'm going by faith, not by sight, with the air conditioning this evening and hoping that it will work a little bit. Uh, I was joking around with several people after the morning service that uh, that's a new strategy from uh, the new senior pastor, and that is uh, halfway through the sermon, we turn off all AC and we crank up the heat. That way, if you're not feeling convicted yet, you'll start, wow, what is, well, that guy's really getting after me here, I guess. Uh, I'm sweating here in my pew, so you can just imagine, if you were hot this morning in the pew, how hot I was up here, uh, I got about 30 minutes in, and I just, I thought maybe it was fatigue from Australia or something, but I had sweat just coming down, and um, anyway, we'll, we'll work on that, and make sure that uh, that doesn't happen every week, please don't tell people we're actually trying to do that. Um, and then uh, the second thing um, I received flack for was the handout that you have, okay, so at this time... If, if you don't have a handout and you want one, we've got ushers in the back and they'll get you one of these. So just slip your hand up if you need one of those and they can get you one. The reason I got some flack for this is pages three and four. Okay, pages three and four are a part of, that, that's, those are my speaking notes. Okay, and to get them on the page, I shrunk them just a little bit. Okay. Uh, we're not going to fill in blanks. We're not going to do anything with this. This is designed for you in your spare time, you know, at home with your magnifying glass, uh, to, with your Bible right next to you, uh, to, to, to just kind of zero in there and pay close attention. So sorry about how small that font is. Uh, I'll review that just a little bit with you. Uh, what I'd like to do this evening is I'd like to work through the first eight verses of Philippians chapter 1. Uh, that's far too big of a section normally for me to accomplish in an epistle especially one that's jam-packed like this one. But I'm going to cheat a bit in that verses 1 and 2, I've given you uh, my notes on pages 3 and 4. And um, my, my, my goal would be not to really say much about that introduction to the epistle. Now, having said that, there's a lot that you could say. I remember one of my favorite preachers and teachers, Dr. Doug McLaughlin. I don't know if that name means anything to any of you. But Dr. Mack... Uh, in a Philippians class I was in, spent the first four lectures on Philippians 1, 1, and 2. Okay, so there's a lot you could say there, uh, but what I'll say is in those verses, you have a description of who the authors are, Paul and Timothy, and you can see that they're addressing it to all the holy people in Philippi, all the part of the church, including the overseers and deacons, the pastors and deacons in that assembly, And we learn in verse 2 that they issue a grace wish to them, that God would give both grace and peace to them. Beyond that, I would say, uh, this week, you can look at pages 3 and 4 and read through those two pages and see uh, exactly what I'm thinking and what I believe is going on there. But what I would like to do is spend this evening looking especially at verses 3 through 8. In chapter 1, Paul describes the believer's proper attitude or mindset as one that is zealously committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the word gospel occurs six times in chapter 1, as I mentioned this morning, and it forms the backbone for what Paul has to say In chapter 1, in your notes on the first page, um, I say here, uh, right at the end of the first paragraph, more specifically, Paul demands the Philippians to be committed to three aspects of the gospel. And uh, we won't look in detail at them, but uh, first, he emphasizes the partnership or the fellowship that believers experience in the gospel. Look down in your Bible at verse 5. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And so what what I have noticed in this first paragraph is that Paul uses the word for fellowship or partnership twice. And he's emphasizing what living a life committed to our partners in the gospel looks like. 
Okay, and we're going to return to that idea in a moment. So he talks first about partnership or fellowship in the gospel. And then uh, in verse 12, I believe he transitions to tell us that a, a part of our attitude toward life is that we would be concerned with the advance of the gospel. Look at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So you could prepare outlines like I do. Nothing complicated. Partnership in the gospel, advance of the gospel. And Paul continues to describe how the gospel is being advanced in the city of Rome through his imprisonment in verses 12 through 26. And so I call all of that section the advance of the gospel. And then in verses 27 through 30, he talks about what worthy living in the gospel looks like. Look at with me at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We didn't, we didn't look at all of the occurrences of gospel in chapter 1, but we'll see those as we go throughout. Okay, so what I've done in looking at chapter 1 then, with all of these occurrences of the term gospel, um, I summarize all of chapter 1 under the umbrella or the discussion of having a gospel mindset. Having a mindset in which the gospel is at the front of our minds or thinking. That we're concerned about living appropriately in it and that we're concerned to advance it. Okay, and so having said that tonight, I want to begin our study of a gospel mindset by looking at what our fellowship or partnership uh, in the gospel should look like. Let's read verses 3 through 8. I'll read them out loud. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers, to be a very similar word to partners, you are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In these verses, Paul gives several distinguishable marks of Christian partners in the gospel. I think we're kind of used to the concept that sometimes certain groups have mark, things which mark their identity. So, for instance, if you're invited to a paintball party and uh, you are asked to go there, you will probably, to be, a, you know, to be a functioning part of the group, normally, normally you will wear a mask, Right? You will put on camo or fatigues, if you're smart, and you will have a functioning gun, unless you're like the human target or something. Okay? So to be a part of this paintball group, there are going to be certain things which will make you look distinctive, make you look different. If you're going to be part of a sports team, you would suspect that any good sports team is probably going to have a uniform. You're going to wear certain shoes out on the court or on the field. And there'll be certain rules of conduct or character for you. As I understand verses 3 and 11, I think Paul is describing marks of Christian partnership by commenting on the fellowship that he enjoys with the Philippian believers. And so what I've envisioned for us this evening is for us all, as we look closely at Paul's partnership with the Philippian assembly, to evaluate our own relationships as Christian uh, believers in this assembly. In other words, I want us all to take inventory of Paul's relationship to the Philippians and look at that, but then to take inventory of our own lives and see if we also measure up or these distinguishing marks could be said of us in this local assembly. 
And so I think that this section actually goes down to verse 11. There are four marks, distinguishable marks of Christian partners, but we're only going to look at three of them this evening. And so the first mark, I would, I would summarize this way. Number one in your notes, continual thanksgiving describes those people, like Paul and the Philippians, who are committed to true Christian fellowship. Continual thanksgiving. Look at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Here Paul writes that every time he remembers the Philippians, he thanks God for them. The word thank here is a common word that he'll use often in the New Testament, and it's a word used to express gratitude. Okay? Now, now, sometimes we're not especially good at being grateful or thankful for the other people that God has brought into our lives, but this should be our normal practice. Okay? So if we're going to take inventory on this first one in verse 3, in our own relationships, I'll ask you this question. Are there people within this assembly for which you continually thank God in prayer? Or another way of saying is it, are there people for which every time you pray about them or for them, you start with spontaneous thanksgiving to God? This first point is very simple. If all my points go this way, we'll be done in like six minutes. But the point he's making with the Philippians is he's recalling his partnership to them is that he's continually thanking God for them when he goes to the Lord in prayer. And so I ask, are there people in this assembly that you're continually thanking God for? Lord, I'm so thankful that you brought this person into my life and their ministry uh, that they performed to me. But then secondly, the second mark, turning to the second page, of genuine Christian partnership is what I would call joyful prayer. Joyful prayer. This is what true Christian fellowship looks like. It looks like joyful prayer. Look with me at verse 4. Paul says, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Here Paul demonstrates or expresses his thanksgiving for the Philippians in that he prays for them. And he says two times in verse 4 that he prays for the Philippians. Now, Paul actually uses a unique or special word that he doesn't use that frequently, uh, the word for prayer here. It could be translated, he makes requests for them, or he pleads, or he makes petitions for them. But there's more that we can learn about Paul's joyful prayer for the Philippians. I want you to notice first its regularity. Right at the beginning of verse 4, he says that he is offering up these joyful requests for them always. Isn't that challenging? Always. This means that he's making requests for, for the Philippians was a constant part of Paul's prayers for them. Another way I would say this is something like this. Every time Paul remembers them, he thanks God for them. And every time he prays for them or makes requests for them, he does so with joy. And so Paul doesn't have some sort of mixed emotions when he thinks about the Philippian assembly. It's just a a joyous thing. I think he had mixed emotions with some of the other assemblies. He thinks back of the Philippians. He's he's making requests for them and he's doing so with joy. But but then notice also the basis of this joyful prayer. The end of verse 5. He's offering up these joyful prayers, and the basis is it's because of your partnership or their partnership with him and the gospel from the first day until now. You see that at the end of verse 5? This partnership that he says is the basis of his joyful prayers involves every word that they spoke or every deed that they did in behalf of the gospel from the moment that they were saved until the present. I think this partnership that he's describing included their monetary gifts that they gave to him. Remember, we studied this morning, chapter 4, they gave time and time and time again. He's thankful for that partnership in the gospel. But it also includes, no doubt, their prayer support for him as an apostle. And includes their own efforts in evangelism 
and edification through the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. You see, one of the things I would emphasize here is that Paul had a special relationship with the Philippian believers, forged in the fires of persecution. He had a common bond, and the word he uses to describe that common bond with the Philippians is the word fellowship, or partnership. Now, in contemporary Christianity today, I I believe we have often cheapened the idea or the concept of fellowship. To many of us in the church, fellowship brings different ideas or thoughts. It may bring visions of potluck conversations about the latest sporting events, the Olympics and our favorite runner, or of the political scene and just how bad things really are for us. So when we think fellowship, we think potluck conversations and those sort of things. Or uh, perhaps thoughts of whispering the latest gossip over a cup of coffee, maybe even in a Christian coffee shop called koinonia, which is the Greek word here. In modern thought, then, fellowship has come to mean something like casual friendship. That's how we sometimes, if we're not careful, view it. But true biblical fellowship involves a partnership. It involves mutual investment and commitment to each other in the name of Christ. Fellowship is a deep relationship in Christ, and it brings with it a special spiritual connection to other brothers and sisters in Christ. So this deep relationship caused Paul, this deep relationship that he had with the Philippians, caused him to offer up regular, joyful prayer for them. And so we stop and take inventory again. Do you pray for your friends? Do you have the names of other people in this church, in your prayer journal. And if not, that might be an indication of the lack of depth in those friendships. Because true Christian koinonia, or fellowship, or partnership, involves joyful praying and pleading on behalf of the other person in Christ. I remember at, when I was at 4th fourth Baptist, just a few weeks before I came here, I was in an adult Bible fellowship. That's what they call them there. And part of the fellowship meeting, we would always pray for each other. And I remember that particular day, I was struck by one of the requests given in the group. There was a family who takes care of a special needs uh, child who's now become an adult, and they're still uh, caring for him. And they expressed some of the things that they were going through. And then we all broke up to pray. Well, there are several prayer requests given. And, and I don't know if this has ever been your experience, but I was in one prayer group praying over you know, certain things. But then for some reason, the, uh, the prayer of another group got my attention. I think I've got a little ADD or something. You know? but, so I'm trying to listen to this prayer, but then I hear this woman praying and pouring her heart out to the Lord on behalf of this couple. And this young man. And it was special. It was joyful to overhear her petitioning the Lord for this group. Do you pray like that for people in this church? Joyful prayer for our partners in Christ is another mark of genuine Christian fellowship. But I've got one more. Verses 6 through 8. Verses 6 through 8, the two words I would use here would be settled commitment. I don't know that I'm fully uh, settled in that description, but you can write it. Settled commitment. One of the things you'll learn about me is I'm always tweaking my outlines. I'm never always changing. I'm a little obsessive compulsive about that. But settled commitment. Although the dominant emphasis at the beginning of verse 6 is Paul's confidence in the Lord, this, this confidence in the Lord leads to Paul declaring his love for the Philippian believers. 
And so these twin themes of his confidence in the Lord and his declaration of his love for them, to me, describe his settled commitment for them. So look with me at verse 6. Paul says, And I'm sure of this, that he who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Here I've got two subpoints in your notes. The first letter is his commitment can be seen in his confidence, or his commitment was confident in verse 6. This verse, Paul declares that God is at work in the Philippian congregation. And he had confidence that they would continue on as a body of believers because of the Lord. See, his confidence did not rest in their own abilities, their own character, or their, their, their own expertise at running the Christian life. Instead, Paul's confidence rested in the purpose and character of God. Verse 6, and I'm sure of this, that he, that's God, who begun a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This reminds me of a text I, I really love to talk about, Romans 8, 28 and 29. You don't have to turn there, perhaps several of you know this verse, these two verses. In Romans eight twenty eight, Paul says, and, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. When I get a new Bible, one of the first things I do is I go to Romans 8 and I circle the words, the good. And I draw an arrow to the next verse, which uh, to the phrase that talks about being conformed to the image of Christ. Time to time when I'd preach or teach, I'd ask people, what is the good of Romans 8, 28? And I think the answer is the good is that Jesus, or God, is committed to conform us to the image of Christ. And so in Philippians 1 and verse 6, I think Paul's basically saying this about the Philippian community. What God starts in, our, in the life of a believer, he will complete at or you could translate it by the day of Jesus Christ, which I'd see just as a day in the future when God perfects those who follow him. In in other words, Paul has confidence that God will not abandon the Philippian believers. Do you believe that God is at work in all believers in the church? I think I came across a good illustration of this a few years ago. Uh, I was watching the 400-meter race in the 1992 Olympics. It's been some time, and it dates me a bit. I actually saw this uh, on TV, and then I've seen it several times, because you can YouTube this. But there was a runner in the race by the name of Derek Redman, and he was a runner for Great Britain. Uh, He was about 200 meters into the race, and uh, that's when he tore his hamstring. I don't know if any of you have ever seen this video before. Now, the reason it's especially touching video is, is although everyone's eyes kind of drifted to the front three runners, the cameras kind of focused in on Derek. And, and what you see, what, what happened in the race is that Derek's father comes bolting through security. First, you don't know what to think. You've got this guy kind of forcing his way out. And Derek comes out onto the track. He puts or Derek's father, comes out on the track, he puts his son's arm over his shoulder. And he leads his son forward so that he can finish the race that he had spent his whole life training. Although everyone else's, else's eyes were drawn to the three winners, Derek's father's eyes were never taken off of him. Do you realize that you have a father who never takes his omniscient eyes off you? When you falter, 
He is there to pick you up and help you move forward. Paul was sure, he was confident that God would complete the good work in the Philippians. And so we, we ask about verse 6, so why is Paul confident? It's an easy answer, because, because of God, he will do it. But then I think that there's another reason he's confident, and that's in verse 7. The other reason why Paul is confident that the Philippian believers will continue is because of how much Paul loves them and how well he knows them. Look at verse 7. It says, It is right for me to feel this way, to be confident like this about you. Because, he's going to tell us why. Because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers of me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul and the Philippian believers had been through the fire together. And he knew that they were well-tested believers. This mutual experience of going through the trial and their participating in the grace of his apostolic ministry produced Great love and confidence in Paul's heart concerning and for the Philippian believers. And so this leads to letter B in your notes. My last point is that his commitment was also loving or can be seen through love. Verses 7 and 8. Now, I'm not going to deal with everything in these verses, but I'll bring out two points here. First, uh, Paul thinks that his confidence in them is justified. Uh, The ESV translates it here, it's right for me to feel. That word could be translated think, and that's important for my theme for the book. So this starts Paul's emphasis on thinking in the book. And so part of Paul's proper mindset is his own confidence that God was at work in Philippi. But then secondly... Paul declares that they are special to him because they've partnered with him in grace. See that? They're partners in grace. That grace might be Christian grace, you know, the grace we all experience in Jesus. Or he could be describing his own apostolic ministry as a gracious thing. Either way, they've partnered with him in grace by helping him in his imprisonment in Rome... They've sent Epaphroditus, they've sent a gift, and they've also helped him by defending and confirming the gospel. And the way I take this last phrase is in their own ministry in Philippi. Okay, so that's verses 7 and 8. But what I want to emphasize are two statements in here that stuck out to me. That really portray Paul's love for them. First, this phrase in verse 7, he says, because I hold you in my heart. Because I hold you in my heart. I I think this is is kind of an easy statement to understand. And sometimes in English we talk this way. We describe someone that we love by saying, you have a special place in my heart. You ever said something like that? But we ask ourselves, I mean, that was true of Paul concerning the Philippians, but we ask, do you honestly feel that way about other members in this assembly? They have that person. That believer in this church has a special place in my heart. Paul loved them. And his love can really be seen. This is where I want to spend the rest of our time this evening. In verse 8, in this really powerful little phrase, where he says that God can testify, or God is his witness, that he yearns for them all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You see that? Yearns for them all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In this verse, Paul further describes his great love for them, and he intensifies his description of it by using the word affection. In some versions of the Bible, the the old versions, like the King James, it would be with the bowels. Remember hearing that before? It always made me a little bit uneasy. The bowels of Christ Jesus. But, But what Paul is describing is this Uh, internal, from within, from deep within affection that he demonstrated toward the Philippian assembly. 
New Testament scholar Moises Silva exclaims that this word affection is the most expressive term available for Paul to use. Paul yearns for the Philippians with a deep-seated affection that comes from Jesus Christ himself. Now, what I noticed in a quick word study of the word affection, I noticed this word is used 13 times in the Gospels. And in every occurrence of that word affection in the Gospels, other than one, it's used of the feelings that Jesus Christ had toward either the lost or to his followers. And so I think that James Dunn is right when he says it's correct to assume that Jesus' emotional response at various points in his ministry lies behind Paul's description, the affections of Christ Jesus here. So what Paul is saying is something like this. I love you in the same way and with the same affections that Jesus demonstrated to the lost and to his followers. That's a significant claim. That is a mark of true Christian partnership. And may I say, that's the call of all believers. Regardless of your personality or temperament. We don't need to change our personalities to love other people extravagantly. We just need to be more like Jesus. I've often commented, uh, it's one of my least favorite things in the world to do, to take temperament tests or personality tests. I've said, you know, what personality is it if you're genuinely pessimistic about personality tests? Because that's what I am. Or what, what personality uh, is it if you get a personality test and you think, the, the very first thing you think is, I know I can beat this. You know, so whatever that is, that's what I am too. And so I don't really like to consider that too much. But, but listen, I don't care if you're a sanguine or a penguin. <laughs> Love like Jesus. That's the call. Christian believers. I, lo- I love what commentator Bachmuel said about this phrase. The, the word, affections of Christ Jesus. He wrote this. He said, and, and listen to this. This is good. This affection is not primarily the sign of a gushing temperament, but of a gushing Christology. In other words, if you're going to be a Christian partner like Paul was to the Philippians, you need to love them like Jesus Christ himself would love the world. Have you ever observed a believer that seemed to have a very special or close bond with another believer? You know, they they, they seem to like to spend time together. They prayed together, they would laugh together, they cried together. They just seem to be enjoying experiencing life together. There's times in my life where God and his good grace have allowed me to see this or experience this. I remember when I was newly married, watching the way my wife Carissa interacted and enjoyed a special relationship that she had with a young lady named Emily Valentine. I noticed the depth of the relationship several times. But it really was not until Emily was taken away, taken to heaven in a car crash at Northland, that I began to understand the depth of that relationship. Emily had been a a teenager in our youth group in Crosslands, West Virginia for three years. Then went to Northland and she came as a student. As far as I can remember, I think Emily was over at our house four or five times a week. I don't think I'm exaggerating there. She'd come over and talk with Chris. They'd work out together. They'd do all sorts of things. They'd pray together. They'd laugh together. Emily was there. She's, she's there in my memory in some of our most joyous experiences as a young family, but she's also there in some of the difficult times that we had. She was there for us. I remember getting the call 
late at night at 2 in the morning. You know when someone calls at 2 in the morning, you know it's never good? Well, I guess it's good. <laughs> That's not what we want. Having someone explain to me that Emily passed away in a car crash. And then I remember going over to the, the dorm, the men's dorm, and seeing hundreds of students mourning the loss of Emily. I also remember coming here. as the last time I was here. Or the only time I was here before candidating. Going through the funeral and seeing that. I also remember when I came to the funeral watching my wife grieve. I have never seen her mourn like that before or since. I'd say Emily was her best friend. See, they had a special bond that went beyond mere friendship. They were partners in Christ. They loved each other with the affections of Christ Jesus. Do you have those sorts of relationships with other believers in this church? I think it's very easy for people in a large assembly like this one to be content with casual friendships and weekly small talk with our little section of the auditorium. But Paul's understanding of fellowship or partnership in the gospel is much more than that. And so as I close in a word of pastoral application, perhaps this evening for your family devotions, you can jot down the names of some within the assembly for which you're thankful for. And then you can go together and pray joyously about them and for them. And perhaps you can ask God for practical ways that you can develop deeper relationships or deeper commitments with other believers in this assembly. Perhaps this week you might want to have some of these believers over to your home in order to get to know them more to partner with them in the grace of God. Or maybe you can commit afresh not to to skip out on functions of the local assembly that are designed to give you opportunities to pray together with people. Listen, I understand how difficult Wednesday prayer time is. (laughs) There's so many times I get to Wednesday prayer time, I'm just so tired like, I'm like propping up my eyes. I'm like, you know, and I, and I perhaps don't even work the job that you do. Mothers of kids. <laughs> I understand. But when we go to prayer time, it's a special opportunity to pray together with someone. To deepen my relationship with them. Perhaps this week you could think about uh, strategizing and planning to be at next Sunday's Grace Gathering. It's not like just like a canceled service. Okay, now I know I've only been here two weeks, but I understand the main target of those grace gatherings is to get you in a different location so that you can deepen your relationship and your understanding of each other. And what I did this last, last, week, last month, I was at Pastor Daniel's house, and it was great partnership in the gospel. Probably so far, some of my closest friends I've made were as a part of that assembly. Or perhaps there's some other way in your prayer time before the Lord that you can discover as a family where you can work on bearing these distinguishable marks of Christian partners in the gospel together. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the first part of Philippians. Uh, Lord, I thank you for what the text of Scripture has to say about Paul's relationship to the Philippian assembly. I'm grateful for the way that he thanked you for them. I'm grateful for the way that he prayed for them. I'm grateful for his confidence that you're doing a work in in their life and then his great love that he demonstrated toward them. 
And Lord, I pray that this assembly would be one in which uh, we really look for ways that we can also show the affections of Jesus Christ. I pray that we might also be able to say, God is my witness. You would testify that I yearn for some other believers in this church with the affections of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, you would do this profound and deep work in our bodies so that we might be a better example to this world of the love of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.